Well, my name's Clayton Walker. I'm the pastor here of the City Church. If we've uh, never met before, honored that you're joining us today. Uh, my, my brothers, though, have a lot of other nicknames for me, right? I mean, when you, when you know someone well, you, you've got a whole host of names that you might refer to them by, okay? A, a lot of nicknames. One of those nicknames for my brothers is C. Murda. Now, you probably didn't know you had a Pastor C. Murda in the house today, but that's me, okay? You may not know me like that, but that's the way my, my brothers know me. And uh, they, they call me that. They call me C. Walk. They call me C.W., Hermano. Uh, my mom and some of my best friends will call me Clay, but I don't want you to call me that because I don't like that, okay? I don't like Clay. My name's Clay Tun, okay? Not Clay. Clay Tun, like a ton of clay, okay? So, so that's what you can call me. I don't like to be called Clay. Some people from our church will call me Pastor or Pastor Clayton. My, my kids call me Dad, right? I mean, my son Levi, who's 13 now, sometimes thinks he can call me Bro. And I'm like, I'm not your bro. Uh, and, and don't come in here calling me your bro. And he comes in all, you know, acting all bad and cool. And somebody's like, what's up, son? I'm like, I'm definitely not your son, okay? It's not bro, but it's for sure not son. You're my son, okay? So you can call me dad or father or whatever, but, but none of this bro or son business, all right? My wife calls me Captain America. That's what her contact is in her phone. Uh, at least that's what I changed it to in her phone. She never changed it. And uh, you may be thinking, Clayton, you've told us that before. I know I have. I know. I'm reminding you that I'm Captain America uh, to Darby. All right. And that's what she calls me. All right? I'm just going to remind you of that. But you see, each name gives you insight into who I am, different sides of my personality, different attributes, some things that you may not have ever thought about me before. You, you get to know those things as you hear some of these other different names. You get to know, well, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor. And you get to know me in these different ways and you see other sides of my character, other sides of my personality. And knowing me in these ways kind of helps you know about who I am more about who I am. It helps you know me better just simply by knowing some of those names. In the Greek language, this is what our New Testament was written in, the word name comes from the Greek word anoma, which is derived from a verb which means to know. And so the point of this series, El Nombre, is to get to know God. And we get to know God by knowing his names as he's revealed himself to us in the scripture. And so that's the point of this series. This today is El Nombre part seven. And you're like, Clayton, uh, we were in a different series last week. How is this part seven? Well, we've done this series two other times. And so we've done six other names of God. And you can find those all on our app or on our podcast in the series called El Nombre. So this is the, the seventh name of God that we're going to cover. And the names of God in the Bible reveal who God is. We wouldn't know God unless he revealed himself, but he has revealed himself and he has revealed himself in the scripture by many different ways. One of those ways is by saying his name. And there are many different names for God in the scripture. But here's the problem when we don't study God as he's revealed himself in the scripture. We make a God in our own image, which is no God at all. It's a false God. It's an idol. 
You see, we aren't left to guess and wonder about who God is and what he's like or what the meaning of life is or what happens to us after after we die. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. That's what every other religion on the face of the planet has done. It's man's best guess. It's man's best opinions about who God is and what he's like and the meaning of life and what happens after we die. But we don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. We don't even have to formulate an opinion about who God is because he's told us who he is. He's revealed himself to us in the scripture. And so to know his names is to know his character, to know his attributes as they've been revealed in the Bible. And in doing so, you get to know God. And that's, that's why we're here. Jesus said eternal life is about getting to know you, God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what life is all about. It's about getting to know God. It's about knowing God. And it's in this knowledge of God. And as we increase in our knowledge of God, it creates and it produces love and worship and faith and trust as we get to know God better. So in this series, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get to know God better and hopefully, prayerfully, our love, our trust, our faith, our worship will grow as we get to know him better. So here's the name we're looking at today. El Dea. You say this day. Ah, El Dea, which means God of knowledge. And here's where you can start filling in the blank in our app under message notes. If you don't have our app, uh, you can download that app in your app store on your phone, the City Church Lubbock. If you do have it, you can open it up, click message notes and all the verses and the points and quotes that we're gonna give you today are all from here. And today is a little bit more uh, just heady. It's a little bit more intellectual. And so it's helpful maybe to follow along with us and fill in the blank as we go so that you can kind of stay engaged and, and not get lost. So we're gonna look at today, El Dea, the God of knowledge. So let's see where this word occurs. We'll look at a few places. Here, here's one of the places this word or this name of God occurs. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Verse three, Hannah is praying. She's crying out to God, thanking God for the child that he's given to her. She, she was barren and without kids for a very long time. And she would weep and cry out to God and pray to God and ask God to give her a child. Well, God eventually does give her and allow for her to have a child. And now she's praying and she's thanking God and she's confessing all these things that are true about God. And, and here's what Hannah says. She says, don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows. El Dea. He's the God of knowledge and by him deeds are weighed. Hannah, even in her pain, trusted and believed in the knowledge of God, that our God, my God is a God who knows. Next, In Job chapter 36, verse four, Elihu says to his friend Job in the midst of his pain and suffering, and I'm sure you've been there before too. Why God, why are you doing this? Or why are you allowing this? Or why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you answering me? Why why, why is all of this going on in my life? And and Job, as you can imagine, is, is wrestling with God. And his friend Elihu comes and says to him, one who is perfect in knowledge, the God who is perfect in knowledge, watch this, is with you. Job, you may not know why you may not know, but there is one who is perfect in knowledge. There is one who does know. And he, the one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. And that was a comfort to Job, even when he didn't know why, even when he didn't understand, even in the midst of his pain and suffering, to know there was a God, to know that God is in control and knows everything, knows all things. 
and that God is with him was a comfort to him. Next, we see this name of God in Psalm 73, verse 11. They say, the psalmist says, about evil people, wicked people, those evil, wicked people, the psalmist says, say this, how would God know? Does the most high know anything? And so the psalmist makes it clear, scripture makes it clear that to believe that God doesn't know all things, to believe that God doesn't know anything is evil and wicked because the scripture tells us God is perfect in knowledge. He's the God of knowledge. God's knowledge can be defined as following in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He said this, God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. God knows all things. He knows things actual. He knows all things possible. He knows all the possible outcomes and he knows the outcome that's going to happen because he knows all things possible in one simple and eternal act. He knows all things possible. God told the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 42, verse nine, everything I prophesied comes true. And now I will prophesy again and I will tell you the future before it happens, God says. I will tell you the future before it happens. Isaiah 46 verse nine, again, God says to the prophet Isaiah, for I alone am God, I am God and there is no one like me. Only I can tell the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass for I do whatever I wish, God says. I can tell you the future before it ever happens because I am all knowing. You see, the quality of knowing everything is called omniscient, which means all knowing. God is omniscient. He knows all things. John says in first John three, verse 20, God knows everything. He is all knowing. He is omniscient. And that goes for the gospel as well. Ephesians chapter one makes it clear that before the foundation of the earth, before God said, let there be light, God's plan was already in motion to adopt you and I into his family by our faith in Jesus Christ, the son of God who died for us in our place for our sin. Before you were ever born, before God ever said, let there be light in Genesis one, before the foundation, Paul says in Ephesians one, before the foundation of the earth was laid, God's plan in his foreknowledge, because he sees all things. He knows the end from the beginning, the scripture says. He can tell you the future before it happens. God's plan before the earth was ever created was to adopt you and I into his family through his son, Jesus. That was his plan. And so if you're ever wondering if you could somehow merit or earn God's favor or somehow be deserving of what God has planned and purposed for you, the answer is a resounding no. Because before you ever were born, God had already planned to rescue you from your sin by your faith in Jesus. You did nothing to deserve it or to earn it or to merit it. It's by grace that you're saved through faith, not of works. There was nothing that you could do because you were born into sin. And God knowing this, knowing that we would reject him, knowing that we would turn from him, knowing that we would sin, 
because he is infinitely personal, he decided to create us anyways. And because God is personal and loving, he didn't have to, but he decided before the foundation of the earth was laid to rescue you from your sin and to bring you into relationship with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. So even the gospel was predetermined and was known by God before the foundations of the earth. Ephesians two goes on to say that for those of us that are followers of Jesus, God has good works planned in advance for us to do. God has great things for us to do for his glory and for the church that he has planned and purpose for you to do before you were ever born. In fact, in the Psalms, we learn that from the moment of conception, the Bible says every day of your life has been planned out. From the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, every day of your life has been planned by a loving God who loves you and wants what's best for you. So God knows all things, actual and possible, and one simple and eternal act. Now, this usually brings about two problems or two questions, at least. And I'm going to try to answer these two questions, these two problems that result from the scriptures teaching that God knows all things from beginning to end. And here's the first one. First question, first problem. If God knows everything that will happen, then how can our choices, my choices, be at all free? Do I not have free will? You see, there's a tension that arises in this connection, the relationship between God's knowledge of everything that will happen in the future and the degree of freedom that we have in our actions. But denying God's knowledge of the future and control of human history at any point in time is inconsistent with the passages that we just read about God's knowledge of the future and with dozens of other Old Testament prophetic passages where God predicts the future far in advance and with great detail. So how, how do we resolve this tension. Well, here was Augustine's suggestion. Augustine was a theologian that was around in the fourth and fifth century AD. And here's what he said about this idea of free will and what's called the, the sovereignty or the foreknowledge of God. Here, here's what he said. He said, God has given us reasonable self-determination. I'm going to say that again in case you want to write that down. God has given us reasonable self-determination. His statement does not involve the terms free or freedom because these terms are difficult to define in any way that satisfactorily account for God's complete knowledge and control of future events. But this statement does affirm what is important to us and what we sense to be true in our own experiences, that our choices and decisions are reasonable. That is, we think our decisions, we, we think about what to do, we consciously decide what we will do. And then we follow the course of action that we have chosen. Augustine calls that reasonable self-determination. It's reasonable because you are thinking about what to do, deciding what to do, and then following that course of action. Now, Augustine's statement also says that we have self-determination. It's, it's reasonable to us because we, we think it's true to our experience that we're making a decision and we follow through on that. He also says that we have self-determination. This simply affirms that our choices really do determine what will happen. It's not as if, if events occur regardless of what we decide to do or not do, but rather they occur because of what we decide and do. 
No attempt is made in this statement to define the sense in which we are free or not free, but that is not in reality the most important issue. For us, it's the most important that we know that what we think, choose, and act, and these thoughts, choices, and actions are real and actually have significance, even eternal significance. If God knows all of our thoughts, words, and actions long before they occur, then there must be some sense in which our choices are not absolutely free. And so that's why Augustine used the term reasonable self-determination. So now let me give you an uh, an example of this. Let me kind of show you where this plays out in the scripture. One of the best places I can show you this kind of happening is in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four. So if you got your Bible, you can turn there or, or scroll down in the app. The verses will be on the screen here in just a second. But in Acts chapter two, Peter is preaching. This is after Pentecost. So Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the grave, gone back to heaven. In Acts chapter two, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. And all of these people gather together, they're freaking out because they're hearing the disciples preaching the good news, the gospel in their own native language, and they don't know these languages. And so people are freaking out, this crowd gathers together, Peter explains it, and then Peter begins to preach the gospel. And here's what he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you, watch this, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Peter says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Isaiah 53 says it like this about the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would come and die in our place for our sin, that it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush his son. Peter says, So it was God's plan, his deliberate plan to turn him over to you, to be crucified on the cross because it was the Lord's will, his predetermined will to crush his son. Now you might be thinking, why would God crush his son? Why? How could it be possible that a good dad would crush his one and only son, Jesus? Here's the answer. God's will was to crush his son so that he wouldn't have to crush you for all of eternity for your sin in hell. Because God is holy, infinitely holy, justice and righteous. God must punish sin. And so the scripture says the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness. And the scripture says by our nature, we are objects of the wrath of God because of our sin. And so because God loves you so much and because he wants a relationship with you and because he wants you to be in his presence and spend eternity in heaven with him one day, it was the Lord's will to crush his son in your place so that he wouldn't have to crush you for all of eternity with his wrath because of your sin. And that's the great news of the gospel that Jesus took our place. He paid our fine for sin and it was the Lord's will to crush his son in your place. And so Peter says, this was, this was God's plan. And it was by his foreknowledge that he did this, that he handed over his son to die in our place for our sin. And then watch this, cause it doesn't end there. And you, and you with the help of wicked men 
put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Wait, Peter, wait a second. You, you just said it was God. You just said God put Jesus on the cross. Now you're saying it's these Israelites with the help of wicked men put Jesus on the cross. So which is it? Peter, which is it? It's gotta be either or, right? Which is it? Is it God or man? Who's responsible for Jesus being on the cross? A couple chapters later in Acts chapter four, the church is praying and here's what they pray in Acts four, verse 27 and 28. They said this, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. So all these people are getting together. They're praying and they're saying, these were the people that got together and conspired against Jesus. They did, here's what the church prayed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So these wicked people got together and conspired against Jesus, but they did what your power and will determined beforehand should happen. So who's responsible, Peter, for putting Jesus on the cross? It's gotta be one or the other. And in our finite minds, that's typically what we go to. We go to either or, but God is infinite. And so in the same way that Jesus was fully man and fully God, he wasn't one or the other. He was completely in 100% both. This wasn't a 50-50 thing. No, the scripture makes it clear. God was, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. The scripture also says about Jesus, he was full of grace and truth. Our minds think, well, no, it's gotta be one or the other. You're either loving or you're truthful, but you can't be both. No, 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 no. Real love is grace and truth. And Jesus was both and. The same is true here. Who's responsible for putting Jesus on the cross? Was it the wicked men or was it God? It was both and. In fact, it was you too. You could lump yourself into the wicked men because it was your sin, it was my sin. You could throw me in there with the wicked men who put Jesus on the cross. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was both and it was God's plan. It was his done by his power and by his will and by his foreknowledge. But we are responsible and we are accountable for our decisions. It's both and. And so it's better, watch this, it's better to affirm that God causes all things that happen but that he does so in such a way that somehow he upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices that have real and eternal results and for which we are held accountable. Now, exactly how God does this and combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices, the scripture does not explain how. Because this is something that takes place and happens in the infinite character of God that we will never fully comprehend because we are finite created beings and he is the creator. But rather than deny one aspect or the other, simply because we can't explain it, we should accept both and attempt to be faithful to the teaching of all the scripture. That God is all knowing that he is sovereign that he is in control of human history and events, that everything that happens, happens inside of his will. But at the same time, in the words of Augustine, we have reasonable self-determination 
and we are accountable for our decisions. This past week, I went to a funeral in Austin and I was driving late at night to get there. And uh, on my way there, I got pulled over for speeding. Now, I, for 15 years, probably every time I've gotten pulled over, I get a warning. I can't explain it. Okay. But I, I was just like, I was frustrated. I knew I was, you know, pulled over. I'm like, I'm just going to get a warning. This is a waste of my time. You know, I got to get there. Uh, and so he comes and he's like, sir, you're, you're getting a ticket today. And I'm like, Whoa, that's weird. That's different. I haven't gotten a ticket, you know, in a, quite a long time because you're getting a ticket today. You're speeding. I was like, okay. He said, Hey, why are, why are you speeding? And I'm like, Oh sweet. Here's my out. Uh, I, I'm going to my aunt's funeral. And that's not like a, a joke or a lot. Like I, I'm that that's for real. And, and he's like, okay, well, you're still getting a ticket tonight. And I'm like, Oh, man. Okay. You know, so I'm frustrated. I'm upset. He goes, he gets me his ticket. He gives it to me. You know, I'm polite. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm frustrated in myself, you know, that I have this ticket and I'm gonna have to pay for it. And, and then he tells me this before he leaves. He says, Hey man, like for real, there is a lot of deer on the highway tonight. Like once you get past Brownwood, there's going to be a lot of deer. And I was like, okay. He's like, no, I'm being for real, man. Like you need to slow down. There's a lot of deer. So sure enough, I get past Brownwood and I'm, I'm, I'm being careful now. I'm not flying. You know, I'm, I've slowed down. I, I, I got the point. And so I, I, I was going real slow. I, I'm, you know, throwing my brights on every time I get and I'm turning them off. I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm very, and sure enough, I saw more deer in about an hour or two from Brownwood to Austin than I'd seen the entire rest of my life. Now, I know you're probably thinking, bro, it doesn't look like you've been out hunting or seen a lot of deer for, you know, you're not dressed like a hunter. And listen, I get that, but I grew up hunting. I grew up hunting. I know I probably doesn't look like it to you right now. I grew up hunting almost every weekend of my life. We had two or three different deer leases. We had a farm in our family. We had, uh, we were on motorcycle leases. I grew up hunting. And I know you're like, bro, you don't look like a hunter. I get it. I got so burned on it. I went like, I was like, I'm done. I'm done with hunting. Okay. Cause I did it so much growing up. All right. So I saw a lot of deer growing up. I promise I hunted deer, a bow hunted elk. Okay. I, I did a lot of that, but in that two hour stretch, I'm not lying. I think I saw more deer in that stretch than I had the rest of my life combined. And twice, Twice, I was literally slamming on my brakes, swerving out of the way onto the shoulder, almost all the way off the road because of two different deer. Now, if I'd been going a lot faster, I don't know. Chances are I'm on a T-bone and went right into it, okay? But why? Why, why did I slow down? Because that cop pulled me over, man. That cop pulled me over and gave me that ticket and I was frustrated and I was mad. But now I'm thinking about it a lot differently. Now I'm thinking, man, I was frustrated about that, but did God bring that cop into my path to give me a ticket to slow me down so that I wouldn't plow into one of those deer? And so now I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Why? Because God's foreknowledge is a good thing for you and for me because he's also a loving dad and he loves you and he wants what's best for you and he's trying to protect you. And now I can look back on that and I see God's all knowingness, his sovereignty, his providential care for his kids is a good thing that he knows the beginning from the end and he can tell you the future before it ever happens. And I don't know about you, but I love a God like that. I can serve a God like that, that loves me and cares for me and knows all things. It can't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that. 
Loving and serving and being loved by a God who knows all things and who is sovereign and who is in absolute control of all events that take place in human history. Wayne Grudem said it like this about God's providential care. He said this, the biblical doctrine is not deism, which teaches that God created the world and then essentially abandoned it and pulled back. That's not what the Bible teaches. Nor is it pantheism, which teaches that the creation does not have a real and distinct existence in itself, but is only a part of God. No, no, no. The biblical doctrine is providence, which teaches that though God is actively related to and involved in the creation at each moment, creation is distinct from him. Moreover, the biblical doctrine of providence does not teach that events in creation are determined by chance or randomness. So, so we don't believe in luck. We believe in the providence of God, nor are they determined by impersonal fate. We don't, we don't believe in fate. We believe in the providence, the sovereign control of God. But events and creation are determined by God, who is the personal, he cares for us, yet infinitely powerful creator and Lord. We may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. This sovereign, all-knowing God is providentially as a good father watching over you, even protecting you and bringing all things in your life and in human history together, Romans 8 would say it like this, for your good and his glory. The second problem, the second question people often have when it is related to the sovereignty of God, this foreknowledge of God, is what about evil? What about pain and suffering and evil? Well, the scripture teaches us this, that God allows it through our self-determination in Augustine's words, he allows it. We make choices that are rebellious against God. And so we experience the pain or the evil that comes from that. So God allows it. He also allows evil as the consequence of our self-determination. There's pain that we actually feel and experience. There's suffering sometimes that we go through as a result of our self-determination, our sin, our sinful choices. The Bible teaches that God hates evil, but at the same time, God uses evil. The Bible teaches that God is not to be blamed for evil, but at the same time, the scripture tells us that God gets glory from evil. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, who's been sold into slavery by his brothers and who has experienced much pain and suffering as the result of his brothers selling him into slavery. Years later, 
after he has now risen through the ranks and become second in command of all of Egypt underneath Pharaoh. His brothers come to him, they're in famine, they're needing help, they're asking uh, Egypt for, for help and they don't realize who they're talking to. They're talking to their brother who they sold into slavery, who is now second in command of all of Egypt. And Joseph says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 through 21, he tells his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You don't have to be afraid. God, God's been in control this whole time. So don't be afraid. You intended to harm me. You did evil and you did evil to me. And as a result, evil was the result. I was sold into slavery and there was suffering and there was pain. So you intended to harm me, but watch this, but God intended it. So, so his brother sold him into slavery, but this is gonna blow your mind, but God intended it. This happened in the foreknowledge of God, within the plan of God. And Joseph recognizes that God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because God is in control. And what you meant for evil, God intended for good and for his glory and for all of our good. That's how amazing our all-knowing, all-powerful sovereign God is. He can take evil that's meant for evil and he can turn it and use it for your good and our good and his glory. That's how amazing, that's how amazing our God is. And the best example of it is seen at the cross. The story of Joseph. It's just a picture, it's a foreshadow of the cross where what was intended for evil by evil, wicked men, God intended for good and for the saving of many lives. And so the greatest evil ever perpetrated in history brought about the greatest glory ever known in all of human history, the salvation of our souls for eternity. And so here's what we know and here's what we can say this morning. If you aren't seeing the glory yet, then God's not done yet. If you aren't seeing the glory yet, then God's not done yet. And I use the word glory on purpose because glory is so much bigger and better than anything this world has to offer. It's so much better than fixing my life or the circumstances of my life so that I'm not experiencing the pain or suffering that I'm going through. Glory is so much bigger and better than any temporal healing even. Glory is eternal, it's heavenly. It's so much bigger and better than anything this world has to offer. And so here's what I can promise you, Christian, if you aren't seeing the glory yet, God's not done yet. You will experience the glory of God in this life or the next one. But Christian, you will see the glory of God. And God is working all things together for your good for our good and for his glory. And so when you don't know what's going on, when you're wondering why what's happening is happening, when you're wondering why God isn't doing what you think he should be doing, when you think he should be doing it, let me tell you what Joseph told his brothers, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Even when you don't know, don't be afraid. Why? Because in the words of Elihu to Job, 
the God who is perfect in knowledge is with you. And so you can say this, I don't know, but watch this. I know the one who knows. I don't know, I don't know a lot of things, but I know the one who does know. I know the one who is perfect in knowledge and he is with me and he is with you. About a year ago, our leadership was looking at a building that we were making offers on. We wanted to purchase it. And it all kind of fell apart in January of this year. Two months later, COVID hit. And I can look back on that situation now. And while I was upset and frustrated in the moment that something didn't happen that I wanted to happen, I can look back now and see the providential protection of God who knows the beginning from the end and who can tell you the future before it ever happens. He knew what was coming and he knew that that would be a bad move for us right before Corona hit. And so I, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know why that happened. I really thought that's what God had for us, but I was wrong. And I didn't know what was going on, but I tell you what I did know. I know the one who knows and he's with me and he's with you. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are El Dea, the one who knows all things. You are omniscient. You know the beginning from the end. You know the future before it ever happens. And there is nothing that happens in this life or in all of human history that is outside of your providential care and concern and control. And so God, I pray this morning that by your spirit, you would fill our hearts with faith and trust. You would fill our hearts with love. You would fill our hearts with worship because we serve a God who not only knows everything, but who loves us and wants what's best for us. And so God, help us to trust this morning. Help us to not be afraid like Joseph said, because we know that the God who is perfect in knowledge is with us. And that's enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen.